Are you anything else you want to cover, or should we just hold hands and jump into the chalk drawing like Mary Poppins? <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> Hi, I'm Samuel from User Onboard. And I'm Johan, also from User Onboard. And today, our topic is Pillar 3 of the Three Pillars of Healthy Growth, which we are now calling beneficial outcomes. Previously, we had been referring to them as super outcomes, but we realized that there was a naming conflict within the internal structure of something further, more detailed and more granular, uh, where we, you might have heard us talking in, in prior episodes about compounding sub-outcomes, where the smaller changes uh, follow a particular sequence and result in a bigger change. So if we call those sub-outcomes, it would mean that super-outcomes would be, rel instead of being relatively smaller in the case of sub, relatively bigger in the case of super. So we needed to find another name for the whole giant pillar uh, to replace the term super-outcomes. And what we came up with was beneficial outcomes because the emphasis is truly on the fact that you want to make sure that you're designing for outcomes where the user recognizes that they are better off and where the business recognizes that they are better off for having helped the user get there. Is that a fair 10,000 foot view description, Johan? Absolutely. And just to address where we're coming from with this, um, have you heard of that Zen metaphor of um, the Zen master points at the moon and uh, the young disciple sitting along with the Zen master is busy looking at the finger. So the Zen master slaps the disciple. <laughs> this is how the story goes. He slaps the disciple and he says, don't look at my finger, look at the moon. And what we're trying to do is point at stuff. And we don't know the right ways to do that yet. We we have certain concepts that we believe are important, but we don't know how to talk about them as yet. And this podcast is our way of figuring it out. And um, I hope this doesn't sound too hoity-toity, but I want to channel the Zen master and say, while we figure out the right way to point at the moon, please join us in looking at the moon rather than the finger. I think that was a wonderful metaphor, uh, Johan, and, and I completely agree. I think the way that I would put it would be that we have identified a major oversight in our entire industry and that w after uh, a couple years of investigation between the two of us, um, we, we feel extremely confident that, that this is an area that deserves more attention. and. We are also trying to be realistic about the fact that we're two individuals uh, seeking to do this because we are passionate about it, but not trying to present ourselves as having everything figured out as well. Uh, we're confident that it needs to be figured out and we are sharing our best attempts at figuring it out uh, as, we, as we proceed. So if being a fly on the wall for that sounds appealing, uh, count yourselves in and if you're looking for something with a little bit more polish and coherence we will be looking to make all kinds of resources available uh, as we proceed so that's that's my general stance on that generally agreed absolutely all right so with that in place let's talk about the topic of the episode today which are a newly minted term beneficial outcomes and what we mean when we say that Let's do a quick review of the past pillars. Pillar one, path design, was all about saying, if you've got people at point A, how can you arrange things so that it's more likely that they get to, path, to point B that they desire, or that correlates with revenue, or hopefully both. And then pillar two was performance valuation, and that was all about how do you measure to confirm that you're actually getting better at getting people from point A to point B. And how do you uh, put a value on getting people to point B in dollar terms and actually be able to evaluate it from a revenue standpoint? And now pillar three is saying, how do you get really strategic about picking the right point Bs to help people get to, to begin with? 
and how do you understand the point B status inside and out and really understand what is driving people to try to achieve those particular outcomes and what role your offering plays in it so that you can understand their timeline as well as possible and seek to integrate your offering into their timeline as seamlessly as possible. It sounds like we're going back to first principles. We're going back to the reason the business exists. And it's easy to think, hey, we've already figured this stuff out, so why revisit the value that people are getting from us? Uh, but it's important to revisit, and we will dig into why over the course of the episode, but uh, bear with us in this journey to that foundational place. You know, we're digging into the, the fundamental value exchange between your business and users here. Yeah, so I think that the difference in in perspective that we're that we're trying to highlight here is that traditionally in almost a like an industrial manufacturing paradigm, you would design something once and then you would mass manufacture it and send it out to everybody who was the consumer or the purchaser of it or the recipient or whatever and it would be it would have a relatively one size fits all experience because you're talking about producing tangible goods that have logistical limitations when it comes to the practicalities of transporting them and you know you you're I think we talked about this in, in a previous episode but like your car door can't tell when you're trying to get into your car and like rearrange its molecules to make that easier for you but when we are talking about digital experiences that very much is the nature of what we're offering where yeah we can think of what we create as a product and we can think of our business model as being predicated on generating revenue by selling access to that product. But that's not describing what's really happening from a functional standpoint. The energy that's driving that process to take place is always being driven by a bigger process. And so in that sense, a, a super process or the pursuit of a super outcome where paying for your offering especially just paying for access to your offering is really always just one small step in a grander pursuit in in someone's life and our theory is that if you pay attention to those bigger outcomes bigger real life outcomes that people are pursuing that you will find patterns and if you have big juicy patterns of knowing that you're connecting people not from point a to point b in your app but from point A to point B in their lives, that really changes the nature of the whole value proposition itself. And it also should really inform a lot of decisions regarding how you're going to organize your business around serving that need and benefiting from it yourself. Agreed. There's also a shift in focus here. Um, if we're talking about finding patterns, um, what typically happens in most businesses is that the pattern finding is restricted to demographics and you're trying to find you know do marketers use our product more than designers and how could we serve marketers better um, I think that's a good line of questioning but what we're seeking to do is transition from thinking in, def in demographics to thinking in terms of situations and particularly outcomes. By shifting the focus, what you're doing is reorienting yourself or aligning, realigning yourself with what is bringing users to engage with you to begin with. They're not engaging with you because they're a marketer. They're engaging with you to um, make this better outcome happen for themselves and the more you understand that the better you will be able to serve them yeah one of my favorite ways of putting it is that people don't come to your product they come through your product they're always arriving at your product or your offering with the intention of utilizing it in a fashion that helps them get somewhere else and so if you think of your product almost like a magic tunnel or portal that gets people to the situation that they prefer as effectively as possible, 
that's that's essentially the name of the game here. It's not about creating an ideal one size fits all UX product and then hoping that people can find success with it on their own. It's getting it's orienting your product experience around helping people reach points of benefit in their lives that you know strongly correlate with driving revenue. Not to, but through. I love that. Well, thank you, Johan. So with, <laughs> with, without any further delay, we can dive into the ins and the outs of what actually truly makes a beneficial outcome and how to go about working with them, around them, and for them. So I think a natural first question would be, how do you go about identifying what they are for your own company? And regarding that question, we have one very strong recommendation in terms of how to get to the bottom of it. And that, Johan, is? To talk to your users and ask them what the product unlocks for them. And that specifically is a very powerful question. What are you hoping the product will unlock for you? Um, because, because you don't want to articulate this beneficial outcome in thematic terms. I feel that's something marketing does really well. You know, the value proposition is a theme of benefits. It's grow your audience, you know, as something Buffer would say. Um, <laughs> Why are you always ragging on Buffer? <laughs> 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 it's just the first product that comes to mind. You know, Buffer should take this as a compliment because they're so top of mind because I look up to them, you know. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I do think they're a wonderful company. I, I rag you out of love, Buffer. <laughs> All right, continue. <laughs> but just improve your team communications or save time. It's, it's very thematic. But when you ask a user the question of what are you hoping this unlocks for you, you're taking that theme and you're personalizing it. And you're saying in your situation, tell me how save time matters or how it fits into your own particular set of circumstances. When we've run these research initiatives in the past, we've always been surprised by how people talk about their own situations. It's always the case that users articulate the problem that you're trying to solve in terms that are meaningful or relevant to their particular situations. Save time, the thematic example, could break down to an extra three hours by automating one particular report, for example. And that specific automation is something that um, a user is very interested in. So. When you run these kind of research initiatives, you are typically looking for patterns within those practicalities. So a particular user interview will take that thematic outcome all the way to the other side of the spectrum and will give you specifics down to one particular situation. But the benefit of looking at a number of interviews, so if you can lay out all the situations one on top of each other and look at them all together, you will be able to find patterns that place your thematic outcome closer to the practical side of the spectrum. And that's one way to get more practical with your with your outcome, to find, to find out what practical outcomes you serve people. Um, ask people, what your thematic outcome means to them and look for patterns in the responses. Right. We want, we don't want this to be overly general. We don't want to be asking people if they would rather save time or have healthier kids or be happier. Like these are just universally well-regarded things and you don't really need to invest a lot of your design efforts on around confirming that. But what we do want to look for are what are the discrete moments when users have recognized, hey, I'm, I'm better off now. Like, hey, I started using Wistia and like things are better now. Like, when do you have those moments where the user doesn't recognize, hey, I made a smart decision regarding which software to use, but actually gets to a point where they're like, 
hey, the, the thing that I am using this software for is working out well. And really thinking about those in terms of being a cluster of characteristics that, the, that help the user wrap their head around whether they're getting value or not. Because ultimately, when we talk about delivering value, value is always determined by the beneficiary, not by the provider. We don't get to bake in X percent more value to the offering that we provide. The value is always right. determined by how useful that offering was in helping somebody get to a different place that is not our offering, but that our offering helped them right. reach. So, and oh, go ahead. The insight, one insight that I want to bring up is that users always know this discrete moment. You know, it could be opaque from a product perspective and you think save time, what does that really mean? How do we know that users have saved time? And it's very difficult to reach consensus internally, but users always know what that means to them. Yeah, because they make, they're talking about their own life and, and what right. the experience of their own timeline unfolding is like. And your offering is just one little satellite consideration in the whole grand mix of all of the things that they're doing to just pursue an integrated life from one day to the next <laughs> or whatever you want to <laughs> reduce that to. And so w w understanding that when your app is when a user session begins. You can you can look at that from a product centric standpoint and say, oh, we are our product is is currently uh, facilitating another user session. Or you can invert that and look at it from the user's perspective and say, okay, now I'm logging into this thing so that hopefully I can do blank and not be in here anymore, generally speaking. And so the context is completely different. And what we recommend is not thinking about how do you come up with engagement hacks that poke and prod people along your retention timeline, but instead, how do you get really good at picking outcomes that you can coordinate with the user around and get really reliable at delivering and know that you can generate the revenue that you need to sustain and grow your business through doing that. Fair? Right. Fair. Fair. All right. So I, as much as I agree with you, Johan, regarding the importance of taking a, a qualitative user research approach and interviewing individual users and understanding what the whole timeline looks like from their standpoint and identifying patterns. I agree very much with you that that would be the ideal approach, but I also understand that not every company is set up to do that right now. And so if you don't have the ability to fire up a user research uh, interview process uh, out of thin air, we do have a couple other recommendations for coming up with what might generally be proxies for the beneficial outcomes that are driving people to and through your product. Right. There are probably people in your organization that are already asking users and customers some version of the question, how can I help you do what you're trying to do? Yeah. And talking to them would be a great place to figure out what's bringing people to your product. Who, Salespeople, who are those people, Johan? <laughs> <laughs> um, salespeople, customer success, customer support, anybody who is the voice of the customer in your product meetings or in your uh, strategy meetings, um, digging more into what they think are driving people to the product is a great place to start. Another thing I really like to ask people who do have more of that frontline exposure with users is to ask what really healthy customers tend to look like. Not the, the sickly people who come in and really they were probably signing up for the wrong thing and they're going to churn out as soon as their monthly subscription ends. But like if somebody comes in and they have particular needs or they are pursuing particular beneficial outcomes, as we would describe them, what are the characteristics that map to really healthy customerhood? And how can we use that as 
again, not not a not a scientific approach, but maybe as a proxy for or an indication that that there's a likelihood that those particular outcomes uh, correlate strongly with revenue, which means if you can help more people reach those outcomes, it should in theory have an, a, a positive impact on revenue as well. One of the um, biggest lessons I took away from um, one of the first CEOs I ever worked with was every time he was feeling too overwhelmed with strategy and, you know, just bird's eye view, high level thinking, he would uh, spend a couple of days doing nothing except answering customer support tickets. And he mm. would just put <laughs> on a headset. Plenty of inspiration, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he would just put on a headset and he would answer tickets and just spend all his time doing that so that he could understand where users are and what they're trying to do and um, get in touch with what's really happening on right. the ground, so to speak. Yeah, another way of putting it is, what is the bigger change that's happening in the person's life that's causing the sub-change, the smaller change of them engaging with our product to become relevant? And what's, what's the bigger right. thing that's driving the relevance of our offering so that we can send as many signals as possible that our offering is good at helping people with that thing and also align our experience around actually being reliable at helping people get to that place. Right. So being really specific here and giving an example. Um, in the previous episode, you talked about maybe building a house from timber. <laughs> I'm realizing now that I don't specifically remember, but just say that was an outcome you were pursuing. At one point, you'd have to put on gloves to go chop down the tree. Right. And, and if you don't know why you're putting on gloves and how that connects to the beneficial outcome of building your own house, um, it's just, it's not going to make sense. Why am I putting on gloves? How does this connect? Should I be doing something different? Right. Users have these questions all the time. So when we were... In, in the in the user research initiatives that we've run in the past, it has always surprised me when users have very clear ideas of where they want to be and very clear ideas about where they are and absolutely no idea how to get from where they are to where they want to be. That's why they're coming to you. That's why they're seeking help, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that takes us back to, we've said this before, I'm sure, but like, we should know, like in the movie Groundhog Day, where, spoiler alert, Bill Murray relives the same day over and over again, and by the end of the movie, he knows the whole day inside and out, and he knows right when to walk by the tree and catch the kitten, and he knows how to play the piano for the old people, and blah, 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 blah. You want to have Bill Murray at the end of Groundhog Day level familiarity with the process of producing the outcomes that are driving people to find your offering to be relevant. Like you wanna map that out to a level of degree that builds trust with the users because they're coming to you hoping that you know this terrain better than they do or else they wouldn't be seeking your help necessarily. So it's really something where we should just completely familiarize ourselves with the unfolding uh, timeline of how this outcome comes to be and can be produced. Uh, and that really starts with getting really clear on what the nature of that outcome state itself is. And so we've recommended user research, interviews, qualitative studies. Also, you can talk to other people who are frontline at the uh, organization you work with. Another thing that you can do is if you're a mobile app, for example, is you can read the reviews at the, the app store or stores. Uh, and, and, or if you're not a mobile app, there are still review aggregator sites like Captera and things like that. And you can go and read the reviews of your products, not with the lens of seeing how many reviews are positive or negative, or even really being that emotionally invested necessarily in the individual experiences that those reviewers had, 
but looking for patterns again what are the things that are happening in these people's lives that's driving them through our product like a car wash we know that they the cars come in dirty and they want to come out clean and like what are the conditions that drive people to want to go through the car wash of our product and and how do we know what what exactly clean is to their specifications and how can we get create a process that reliably gets them there right i feel like g2 crowd could be a double-edged sword though because um users who leave reviews aren't being very specific about their situations, right? You kind of have to piece the dots together. You definitely need to read between the lines, but I have found them to be a pretty rich source of that. Or there are times like, I remember reading uh, a, uh, a review for something, it might have even been on Amazon, like a physical like piece of hardware, and they were like, Oh, I was going to have my bros over for a Super Bowl party and have three TVs set up and everything was going to run through this, but then it didn't come with an HDMI cable and it totally ruined everything. And like you can <laughs> you can infer a lot about what the role that HDMI cable played in that person's life. And if you see a lot of patterns even just around something like watching sports or watching live television or having people come over to your house to watch television together or whatever these common patterns are, you know that it's not just you're connecting the HDMI cable from the satellite dish to the television. Like it's, it's, there's, there's more than just putting on gloves. And from a product standpoint, we don't want to be like, how do we get more people to put on gloves? We want to be more in touch with the bigger patterns that are driving people to want to put on gloves. Right. And that way, when people don't know why they're putting on gloves, you can tell them, you have to put on gloves in order to chop the tree, in order to get the wood that you need to do the thing you care about. And right. There's a cascading sense of relevance where if you know, an example that we use all the time is nobody goes to the dentist because they like going to the dentist. Maybe it's because they want to have healthy teeth. Maybe it's because they want to have a bright smile. There's some compelling factor that's driving them. They're, they're pursuing a, a beneficial outcome through the instrumental approach of going to the dentist but they're not doing it inherently because they like going to the dentist. In a similar way, if you know why somebody is putting on gloves, then that's the bright smile or that's the healthy teeth and putting on gloves is going to the dentist. And so you can always take what somebody is currently doing and wrap it in a bigger, more meaningful context if you're aware of what that bigger, more meaningful context for users are and and our general position is that your your offering should not you, not only should you acquaint yourself with what those are as an organization but that you should supercharge your offering around delivering on those really really well as being a a critical business function in a sense i want to take a moment here to separate uh some existing ideas from new ones that we're bringing to the table um, identify the bigger context that your product fits into is not a new idea. Kathy Sierra called it the compelling context. Shout out Kathy um, Sierra. <laughs> shout out Kathy Sierra. I will, you know, never get tired of shouting out to Kathy Sierra because, <laughs> you know, oh my God, the amount of inspiration and, yeah. you know, nuggets of uh, knowledge that, you know, she's given us. Let's not make better cameras. Let's make better photographers. Right, right. And photography is the compelling context that is bringing people to your product, the camera. Yep, agreed. Um, jobs to be done also in this direction, you know, your product is being hired to do a particular job. These are all existing ideas. But one point of clarification or the way where yes, Anding these existing ideas is to is to bring this thematic and practical distinction to the table. So that's a big one, you know. Um, the compelling context, photographers, the job to be done is these are very thematic uh, terms. Right. And when we're talking about discreetly recognizable outcomes. We want points where the user of the camera says, hey, I'm a better photographer now. 
we want to aim for those. We don't want to have a vague and unspecified general direction of quote unquote better photographer that we are hoping our product will help people get to. We want them to be recognizable moments in the, the timeline of their life. And so with that in mind, the, the next big question becomes, how do we tell the investable or good beneficial outcomes from beneficial outcomes that might sound good, but maybe not enough people actually really care about, or they don't care enough about it necessarily, and that it's not going to actually be able to power your business model. You want to find the really juicy beneficial outcomes that have a lot of inherent motivation and that strong, uh, not strong, and that closely align with the mechanisms of your business model itself. So quick example here being if you are looking to provide a beneficial outcome that takes 15 minutes to do and you're hoping to set up a business that's predicated on a subscription monthly revenue, probably not going to work out the best because the thing that you're that you're probably going to have really, really bad month one churn, if if anything. And so uh, just thinking about how do you coordinate the solving of the user's problem with the generation of the outcomes that you're trying to create specifically in the form of revenue. And so specifically, we like to put uh, the beneficial outcome candidates through a, a battery of questions to confirm that this is ultimately going to be something that's worth everyone's time, not only our own time and better understanding it and better designing for it, but also the user's time. Like, you know, it's just actually something that they want to do. So one big question is, is this outcome truly beneficial to the person who's attaining it? As we've been saying that if, if value is really in the eye of the, the beneficiary, how do they know if and when that they're better off? And what are those points of indication that they're looking to or could be presented with that let them know when they're better off? Because those would be things to really consider designing around. And if you have a, a beneficial outcome candidate in mind and you are really drawn empty on, on any indications that the person can look at to tell that they're better off, probably an indication that that it's more of a thematic outcome as Johan's been calling them where it's it's a little overly vague and, and general where here we're talking about having a discrete point in time that we can get people to in a reliable way and power our business through and ultimately be able to tell whether we're getting better at that or not through measuring the 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 success rate of of our our system and getting people there so really important that not people not only are able to discreetly recognize this as a, a moment in their life, but that they also recognize it as being, hey, this is the this is me doing the thing that I was hoping to. I would personally love to be able to slam dunk. I have never I've never jumped off the ground. I have been able to jump off the ground and then grab the net and then like climb my way up the net and then have somebody pass me the ball and then I've been able to like quote unquote slam dunk by like awkwardly tipping it into the basket. But I've never jumped off the ground and just been like and just jammed the basketball into the hoop. And I would love to do that. And if there was some sort of offering that helped me get there, what I'm talking about is like that moment where I'm like, dang, I just don't. That, like, that just actually <laughs> happened. Those are the moments that we're looking to, to design for. And we want to be really specific about that. And so if we can't get specific about it, if it just makes you a better athlete, quote unquote, how do you know when people get there? How do you know that you're actually getting better at, at people arriving at that? So that's a big consideration. Um, another way of, of thinking about it, I really like what you were saying, Johan, when, when you're asking them what it unlocks for them, like more specifically, like what are the things that you can do after you've reached this beneficial outcome that you couldn't do before? What is the thing that putting on your gloves lets you go chop wood without your hands getting cold and cut up? Like that's, that's what you can do after putting on gloves that you can't do before putting on gloves, for example. Could you give us another example there that's more geared towards the beneficial outcome rather than the sub outcome of putting on gloves? Um, like what could you do with, um, like now that you can slam dunk, what can you do that you couldn't do before? 
well, keep slam dunking, probably. If I could slam dunk, I would just <laughs> slam dunk all day, every day, probably, to be completely honest right. with you. I, that looks, it looks so satisfying. I, <laughs> <laughs> I realize that in asking you for an example, I, I gave the example. <laughs> Um, okay. Well, I mean, I would say that it, it's not so much about examples necessarily as it is about measuring the degree to which people desire something. Like if you if you can't tell it, when they can tell that they're better off, that's not a good sign. And it's not a good sign either if you feel like in the in the grand scheme of things, people don't even really want it enough to pay for help with it. If, if that's another indication, if you're if you're looking around and saying, how are people currently paying to solve this problem? And you're not seeing anything that's currently set up to 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 service this outcome. Maybe this is a blue ocean thing and you can go in and have no competition. Or maybe it's an indication that mm, perhaps even other businesses have tried and failed and that there's just an elephant graveyard of people who thought that they could uh, could help put mustaches on cats and thought that that could power a business. And it turns out that there just aren't enough people who want putting mustaches on cats badly enough to, to build a business around. And, and that's okay. So you want to find the things that are not putting mustaches on cats. And so one thing is, do people really want it? Do they at least want it enough to pay to solve it? Because otherwise, what are you building your business around? Unless if this is just an early, early freemium offering or something like that. Another big question would be, do people regularly seek to attain this? Is this something that only happens in a seasonal capacity where only, you know, if you, you have a skiing app and so you know that skiing is really only going to be uh, sought help with during one particular time of the year as, as contrasted with the others, or the fact that maybe this is something that people generally want uh, overall, but only at a particular time in their life, or that they do it as groups, or that they do it routinely, especially if we're looking at beneficial outcomes that you would wanna put an underline under in terms of potential for powering a business. If you have a SaaS business that means you're dependent on subscription revenue, AKA recurring revenue. And if you want recurring revenue, you should hopefully be solving a recurring problem or at least a problem that takes long enough to resolve that it can power your subscribers through the first however many months where your, your, your monthly churn is probably the highest in terms of the customer life cycle. So at least be thinking in terms of what are maybe some underserved longer term outcomes that we can help people attain. And if it takes eight months, then great. We're much more likely to retain people through those eight months if we're actively helping them and demonstrating progress toward a recognizable goal for them that they, that they themselves care about, you know? I feel like a question a few of our listeners might be having at this point is wouldn't a successful business simply by being successful have all of these questions answered like how can you have a successful business without having these questions answered i i think that's a fair question i i would say that they if you don't understand the causality of it then that you don't have a handle on it per se you don't want to be flying blind in terms of being able to tell which beneficial outcomes are actually powering your business and which ones aren't. So if you're just saying, well, we have a pretty good familiarity with our user base or our customers and we feel like we're serving them well, so why overthink it? The reason to overthink it is because some of your efforts are probably providing a return on investment to both you in the form of revenue for producing whatever better experience you have, but also a return on investment to the user for their time that they're investing in trying to achieve a particular outcome your way. And so if you have, like, I remember uh, there's a, I can't remember who the quote's from, but it's something like half my advertising spend is wasted. The trouble is I don't know which half. And so in a similar way, like, you know that your, product 
is a bundle of things that help people resolve different outcomes. And if you don't have your finger on the pulse of which outcomes are most meaningfully driving your business and how well you're performing at delivering those outcomes to the people who desire them, then, then there's a very good chance that you're wasting half your advertising spend, except it's half of your product roadmap or things along those lines. So is that fair, Johan? Right, that's fair. And another reason I'd add to pay attention to this kind of stuff on a recurring basis is because the outcomes that people are pursuing with your product could be constantly evolving as the product changes. Absolutely. So, Or as your market changes. Yeah. If you're bringing in new right. people through different forms of acquisition and we're seeing that all of a sudden the, the new acquisition channels are just totally tanking out and nobody's getting to the point of being able to slam dunk, that's, that's something you want to know as a leading indicator. You want a canary in the coal mine there. And right now, not only do people not have early indications, they have virtually no indications. With, with the majority of companies that I personally have uh, encountered, there, are, there is no sense as to are we, are we getting better at delivering these outcomes that we know drive revenue or not. Even saying, do we know which outcomes drive revenue or not, is really not uh, an open and shut case for uh, many companies. And, and I think that it, it, it's to, to the pity of, of them and their users. Great. Okay, so now that we know the questions are important right? and why they're important, let's get to the rest of them. Okay, so another big question that we like to ask in addition to, is this actually really meaningful to people? And ideally, can we find evidence to support that? And also, is this something where the timing of it works, where how long it takes to attain or how often it repeats and things like that match up with our business uh, model? Another big question is, do we actually want to help people who are pursuing this? Do you generally like working with and serving people who are frequently in need of help with attaining this particular outcome. It, you don't want to have a, a setup where you're just miserable because you're built your whole business around delivering an outcome that a bunch of people who you can't stand are asking your help with. So think about just kind of setting up in real estate, it's location, location, location. And with beneficial outcomes, it's kind of a similar thing, except instead of for location, it's just listing out what would be an ideal quote unquote market to build a business model around? And I put that in quotes because here we're talking about a market uh, defined by serving an outcome rather than serving a demographic. Uh, but in any case, like there are going to be a, a, a different kinds of people involved. And if you like working with them, that would be a big, a big benefit. Another big benefit would be if you like the process of actually getting people to that point. You don't want to set up a uh, business that helps people graduate from college if you really hate working with the college bureaucracies or things like that. Or maybe you can do it in a way where you create a new process that's better that you do like, but just thinking about the overall process in which your process exists and making sure that you like that. And then lastly, another question of whether you really want to help people pursue this or not is whether you think it makes the world a better place. And, and we're not here to pontificate or impose our values on anybody else or anything along those lines. But I think everybody's got different definitions of what the world being a better place is. And I would generally say that people are more likely to find satisfaction in working on helping people arrive at outcomes that actually make the world better. I, I think that's an, an inherent motivator, not only for uh, your users, but also for your employees and things like that. People like to feel like they're doing good in the world. So, uh, and frankly speaking, there are, we know for a fact that there are a lot of companies out there who are just fine with delivering uh, what's the opposite of beneficial outcomes? Adversarial outcomes or... or <laughs> One-sided <laughs> outcomes, maybe? Yeah, or undermining people's sense of, of confidence or security with, with their identities or their place in society or all kinds of different things. And so we know that there are casinos and, and, and bad actors out there in the 
software world that are intentionally manipulating people's behavior in a very extractive and predatory way. And, and for us, if it doesn't pass the you think it makes the world a better place question, it's, it's worth, worth rethinking about whether you really want to do it or not. You have to live in a world filled with people who are experiencing your offering if you really do it well. Right, right. All right. So that's another big set of questions. The, another big one is not only do we want to help people pursue this, but can we actually help people pursue this? Again, do we have a clear, defined, slam dunk outcome that we're helping people arrive at? And do we know the ins and outs of this? How, how prepared are we to be a trusted source for help with this at the moment that it arises in someone's life? How do we set the stage to build that relationship over time so that when their decision comes, it's obvious who they want to go with? Lots and lots of questions around this too of, do we actually have the capability to be, if not world-class, preferable over whatever other options are out there in terms of ways to arrive at this, at this particular beneficial outcome? Right, your real competitors are other value paths. You just blew my mind. What do you mean by that? <laughs> your competitors are not other products. They're other value paths to a particular outcome. Is this sort of like in the jobs to be done sense where they're saying a morning milkshake is competing with bagels and donuts and not other fast food chains kind of a thing? Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, I take it back. You didn't blow my mind. But that is a very <laughs> good point to make. <laughs> and while we're on the topic, one aspect that I think can be overlooked or doesn't seem like it's necessarily super crucial, uh, but that I come back to personally time and time again, is thinking about not only how reliably can we help people arrive at this outcome, but how reliably can we be present when they're making the choice of how to go about arriving at the outcome. That really, if, you, if you're thinking in terms of timelines, you almost want to do time travel where you go back to the place where people were at before your product became relevant. Like what were the things that were happening before the thing that's happening that's causing your product to be relevant now is? And how can you lay a breadcrumb trail and develop a relationship of trust through educating people about the more basic things that go along with it or help them just kind of even deeper back in the timeline so that when it's really prime time for where you're offering uh, is it really can showcase itself and where its value really shines, you're working with people who are already warmed up to working with you rather than starting with totally cold signups that are coming from who knows where. Right. You want to be selling umbrellas in the rain. That's how we put it. Yeah, we, we're not trying to sell umbrellas to people when it's not raining and talking about the, the beautiful chestnut finish of the handle and how each of the different uh, spokes has uh, different uh, metal alloy tensile strength or whatever. We're saying, hey, we observe that you are wet right now. Would you like to have something that helps you not be wet? Uh, that's 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 when you that's beneficial outcome thinking for sure. Right. And that's I like to tie this back to the point you were saying previously, location, location, location in real estate, being present on a timeline when the need for the outcome arises is the equivalent of location, location, location. Totally agreed. Totally agreed. It's almost like you just take the concept of location in space and you just translate that to location in time. Right. The user's time. Exactly. Yes. How do you detect when people are at the beginning of a process that you can help facilitate the arrival of the outcome with? Right. All right. So with that said, there are different ways of approaching that, but that is not the main thing that we're talking about today. We are just trying to cover the basics, high level of what beneficial outcomes 
are and how to go about identifying them. And thus far, we've talked about different ways of going out and trying to read between the lines or speak uh, directly to users and hear it direct, straight from the horse's mouth, uh, different ways of coming up with ideas for beneficial outcomes. And now we've also just talked about the, the battery of questions that we like to put them against to make sure that they're passing a general reality check. And for any outcomes that do show promise here and, and that we do feel people care enough about and we want to help them and they care enough about it to drive our business model and it happens often enough for us to be able to scale and so on and so forth, the next major consideration is how do we understand the pursuit of this outcome inside and out? If we want to be the best path to this particular point of value, how do we understand all the nooks and crannies of what it really takes to go from point A to point B when we know that that's what people are wanting to do? And so from that standpoint, we really like to explore that outcome in, in like a 360 degree way so that we can understand what are the pressures that people are facing along the way that are causing them to want to pursue this, who else might be involved in this process that we need to get their participation from? Are there different assets or resources that people need to acquire along the way? Sort of like in, in one of the earliest episodes, uh, Johan, you mentioned like if you're selling pancake mix, that sort of means it needs to come with a spatula in one form or another. Uh, so those kind of considerations and just thinking about what does the what are the things that we know about the outcome state and that we know about what had to happen to get there that we can just capture as details so that we all can have a rich understanding of what that process is rather than it being like everyone having their unique interpretation of what it means to save time or to make more money per hour or vague thematic things like that. Right. And this is another way that value parts adds to the outcome conversation that already exists within our industry. We want this outcome not just to help us acquire more people, but also to help us actually improve the product. And um, there's no real framework for how to use the outcome to impact um, impact the process of getting to that outcome. Right. A lot of things with jobs to be done are identifying what are those bigger contexts that are compelling people to to become consumers of your offering in, in some form or another. And it's bizarre to me how so much of jobs to be done focus has been placed on how do you use that as inspiration for better sales, marketing, and positioning, rather than how do you use that as inspiration for creating a better way of resolving the job? <laughs> like to me, like that is the key insight of jobs to be done. And and it's it's strange to me to see it being used as a way of like slapping different labels on the same thing rather than changing the fundamental nature of the thing itself. Okay, so the 360 view matters because you can apply all of the insights you get from analyzing the outcome to path design and design a better path for users to go through. Correct, so that you can in increase your success rate, which you would be uh, evaluating with performance valuation, pillar two. Right, right. So if pillar one is all about designing a better process of getting to an outcome, and pillar two is all about being able to tell whether that's actually performing better or not, pillar three is picking the right outcomes to be good at delivering in the first place and being as familiar with it as possible so that you can provide a preferable option at the moment when it's actually needed and own that location, location, location in time through understanding it inside and out a la Bill Murray and Groundhog Day. Right. Um, 
that was a great summary, actually, of all the ground we've covered so far. Well, thank you so much, Johan. <laughs> so with, the, with that <laughs> being the case, one final con- big consideration that we would like to uh, pr- include in this high-level overview, and there is so much more to dive into here. Uh, if it sounds like we're just kind of speaking in generalities, there is a lot more that we would love to be able to talk about the ins and outs of. But the last thing that we will leave you with is thinking about the beneficial outcome, not only in terms of having explored it from 360 degrees, but getting ultra, ultra clear once you have reached that more intimately familiar understanding of the ins and outs of the the outcome and the process for producing it. Once you have that familiarity, you want to get really, really clear on what the critical parts of that are and what other parts might just kind of be flavor or might possibly be included, but maybe not all the time or things along those lines. And so for the last part of it, what we really recommend doing is taking those characteristics of the timeline. So if we know, if we're talking about uh, selling umbrellas in to people in the rain, we know that there are particular atmospheric conditions. It's it's probably cloudy if it's raining. There's probably water on the ground. I would imagine we might be in a city type atmosphere. Otherwise, we wouldn't uh, have access to enough people to make selling umbrellas worthwhile, so on and so forth. And so you can infer a lot of different characteristics of the outcome situation and all of the situations along the way toward producing that outcome. And if you can get really clear as a team on which aspects are critical versus which are maybe expected to be there, but aren't really like what's driving the meaning of the experience to the user, that can be really helpful as well. So in the same way that we were talking about, uh, I think it was like socializing and making friends could mean 10 different things to 10 different people. Here at this point, we would be saying specifically, it means characteristic X, Y, and Z are in place. And that's what forms the crux of this situation. And it might also include A, B, and C, but those are more nice to haves or possibilities or related characteristics versus absolutely essential characteristics. I think that that can really make a world of difference when you're talking about taking a problem that from a user experience standpoint is experienced cross-departmentally, going from the value propositions that uh, AKA beneficial outcome promises that are being made by uh, by marketing uh, and going all the way through onboarding, through the product experience, customer support, customer success, the whole gamut. Everybody should be aligned across your entire organization around helping your users succeed and getting a really, really clear stance on specifically what success looks like in defined and shareable terms lets you gain consensus across your whole organization and have everybody pulling in the same direction. I feel like we should clarify. When you say you should get all your teams to align around user success, people feel like they're doing this already, right? So what are we proposing that's different here? And I think we should get really clear about that before we, before we wrap things up. Um, I'll start. I think that one of the points of difference here is that it's often the case in our industry that only a few people in the company think about the path as a whole or think about how in-product stuff connects to out-of-product stuff. There are very few people like the C-suite almost exclusively that focuses on that connection and everybody else gets a mandate to focus on something in the product or focus on a very small part of the problem that they can ostensibly control. Um, I think the reason people do this is because it's more productive to break a problem up into chunks and trying to solve it, um, trying to solve all of those chunks individually and hope that they all come together to form like this solution. But what we're recommending is break the problem into chunks. That's fine. But don't lose sight of the out of 
app reasons that are bringing people to the product to begin with because that's really what all of the chunks have to align themselves around yeah i totally agree and i think personally a lot of this is just sort of a hangover from the the industrial approach to doing things um and, and i think that you know if you're if you're designing a, a new model of like a sneaker there you're never gonna let the sneaker will never be able to tell what the person is wearing the sneaker to do and be able to reorganize itself to be more helpful in getting that person to the outcome that they desire. But software is it's just inherently flexible in, in its own nature that way, where we are surrounded by information about what users are doing and how they're engaging with the product and with even just some surgically placed questions and paying more attention to uh, ambient information that's available about the users, we should be able to make at least a decent guess as to what kind of outcomes they're actively in pursuit of. And, and, and like, I, to, I'm trying to put as bold of a point on this as I can, are asking us for help with. Like, they are coming to us for help with things and for us to give a shit about what those are and to at least, I mean, at least care about it insofar as you know which ones are driving revenue the most. Why would you not want to know that? Even if you're a heartless capitalist, you would still want to, I mean, no offense to capital. Well, I mean, whatever. Offense to heartless <laughs> capitalists at the very least. <laughs> but not just, anyway. <laughs> but even, even if you're just in it for totally self-centered reasons, you would still want to know the 50% of your ad budget that was going in the right place versus going in the dumpster. So the silos that are created within organizations, I think one of the way of one of the ways of breaking down those silos is have everybody see the connection between their efforts and the out of outcome reason that people are engaging with the product to begin with. It's that user outcome that leads this dance between the product and the users. It's, it's that outcome that is initiating the dance and um, business, or, sorry, um, and revenue is a byproduct. Revenue follows, but to, to have a few people thinking about revenue and everybody else thinking about in-product outcomes and the few people thinking about revenue tying in product outcomes to out of app outcomes it just doesn't make sense or to be scandalously frank y'all are fucking it up <laughs> like you're not <laughs> like the people that when we we hear from product managers who say they are getting 12 month roadmaps dumped in their laps or we hear from growth people who say that the chief revenue officer just hands down some holy goal from on high like improve day seven engagement or something like that and the teams get no context around why these things are important or how to tell if they're getting better at serving the users or not it's garbage man that's a that's a dumb way to run your company and I'm a U, I have a UX background. I am a humble UXer. I am not an executive. I am not uh, a, a, a sophisticated operator in the world of finance. But I know that if the fundamental nature of your business model is to be engaged with and distributed by people who are motivated to use your product to some particular end, it makes sense to at least have a passing familiarity with who is seeking which ends and why and how you can be better at getting them there. Right. Right. And as a user of stuff, if more products did this, I would be so happy. <laughs> <laughs> so happy. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. mean, ultimately, that's, that's a major aspect of, of our message here as well, is that we see the kind of digital environment slash metaverse, whatever you want to call it, that 
people are spending more and more of their time in and therefore more and more of their lives in and looking at future generations and i you know i have a kid and i don't want him to be uh experiencing uh, uh, uh exploitative predatory kind of experiences i don't want him getting farmville so to speak uh and, and i would like for his uh world that 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 we share and that we might experience differently as well to be designed with the recognition that it is the human outcomes that are driving the entire engagement and that designing for anything other than that is likely to be ineffective as well as likely to be unethical. Right, right. In an ideal world, growth teams wouldn't be focused on improving day 30 retention. They would solve a small problem but they would see how that problem ties back to why users are coming to the app to begin with. Or even just be just thinking about it in terms of like how reliably are you delivering on your value proposition where there are certain expectations that are being set by your marketing. And if your product and growth teams aren't working in a way that's coordinated with that, it's going to be a herky jerky experience of actually trying to arrive at that value proposition that marketing is putting out there as as being the the thing that your product makes easy, you know? Right, right. It's like the ballet slippers example in the previous episodes where if you're if if the if the beneficial outcome is having ballet slippers and then you signal that you're going to help me with this and then you dump me in something that has nothing to do with it, how much trust is that going to build? I'm moving on to the next option. Like I've got zero commitment to this, you know? Right. So, long story short is that we strongly recommend acknowledging the fact that there are some user outcomes that are driving what could even be the majority of your revenue and being able to identify what those are through user research, through different proxies, so on and so forth, and being able to really understand them inside and out and reach a shared sense of consensus and clarity around what the actual crux and essence of that outcome state is lets you put the rubber to the road and be able to actually provide a better experience and that kind of loops us back from pillar three all the way back to pillar one which is path design and so instead of just going over path design all over again instead next episode we're going to walk through one particular tactic that we both really enjoy in terms of being able to identify which beneficial outcomes people are seeking and how many of them are seeking the different ones that you're offering and how well those correlate with revenue and a number of other things as well. So stay tuned for next episode, please. And don't forget that we absolutely love to get your feedback, good, bad, weird, or otherwise. And uh, we respond to everything that we receive. So please keep things coming in at podcast at useronboard.com. And otherwise, thank you so much for listening. And we will see you soon. Keep fighting the good fight. Said it before you could. <laughs>